there are going to be issues with environmental legislation as we move forwards. And ahead of the election, we're seeing this increasingly politicised. It's going to be a very serious effort by the far right and some of its allies to try and kill the European Green Deal. And I think anyone who does not want that to be the case, wants this agenda to be a success, needs to come out fighting for this. Hello and welcome to Reactive's Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evi Kiori and this week we're looking into the nature restoration law. After months of heated debate and amidst of a controversial opposition campaign, the EU has narrowly passed a crucial law aimed at safeguarding nature, an integral component of Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's ambitious European Green Deal. The Nature Restoration Law sets forth a bold vision targeting the implementation of recovery measures on 20% of the EU's land and sea by 2030, with the ultimate goal of covering all degraded ecosystems by 2050. Lawmakers in Strasbourg watered down the proposal on certain aspects before narrowly avoiding its rejection by only a few votes. The legislation will now be sent back to an environment committee for further deliberation and negotiation with member states. The urgency behind this law stems from a landmark scientific assessment conducted in 2019, which revealed that nature is deteriorating at an unprecedented rate. Climate change, pollution and human exploitation of land and sea have been driving this alarm and decline. The restoration law seeks to reverse this trend and aid the European Union in achieving its biodiversity targets. But what happened during the parliamentary vote? We had the nature restoration law. It was coming to the vote in a fairly precarious state. It had been rejected in various forms by three committees. Kira Taylor is Euractiv's energy and environment reporter. One was quite close, so everyone was sort of optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Mm-hmm. No one really knew how well it was going to go. You had the people who were against it saying, we're going to win. You had the people who were for it saying, we're going to win. So it was very difficult to tell which way this law was going to go. But it had seen a big move against it by particularly right-wing lawmakers, led particularly by the European People's Party. And it also had a bit of an odd way of doing it because normally you just have the amendments and then you MEPs at the end vote to adopt it or to reject it. This time round it started with a rejection vote. So we could have faced about a So it was already minute, a no. Yeah, well <laughs> from the it, side. It was it could have been a no. Um And so everyone was saying, are you going to Strasbourg? And I was like, it could be a five minute vote. Like literally they could say nature restoration law. Nope. Okay, next. But that didn't happen which I think everyone was holding their breath before this, but it survived the rejection of vote. And then it had all of the amendments happen. And then we all held our breath again because they had to adopt the final text. And they did that. I have to say, I was a bit surprised. When people were asking me before, I was like, well, I don't want to say, but I wasn't positive about it. The final text has been significantly weakened as a result of, of the, uh, the onslaughts. Peter Depu is head of the E3G Berlin office and program lead in E3G's fossil fuel transition program. The aim of the, the EPP and its allies was not to have a weak text, but to have no text. So the fact that at least a weak text was adopted is still, you know, it's, 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 it's still a loss uh, by the EPP. 
And to put things into perspective, why is this vote so important? So this is a, a massive historical law. Uh, last year, we saw the European Commission and the EU in general sign up to the Montreal Biodiversity Agreement, which was to protect uh, more nature. In general, Europe's ecosystems are in a very poor state. We're seeing degraded soils, we're seeing biodiversity loss. And then this is even worse because we need this nature to tackle climate change. So not only do we need it to be in a healthy state for our food production, for our general well-being, but the worse climate change gets, the more we need nature to protect us. So we see that healthy ecosystems are really useful in helping to mitigate extreme weather, like these forest fires we're seeing, like flooding. So they protect humans. They can also store more carbon, so they prevent the atmosphere warming as quickly as we're seeing. Uh, and obviously it helps food production as well if you have a healthy ecosystem where you're growing it. So what is behind this controversy? Why is there such a big divide between the two sides of the parliament? This is touching on a, a, a sector that is um, very closely linked to the EPP, the, the farm lobby. They are used in Europe to, to get what they want, almost always. And so far they've been given a light right compared to any other sector in Europe the farming sector has not been regulated or been asked to do much uh, through particularly regulatory instruments. The farm sector is very much used to receiving subsidies and then potentially some conditionalities, but they're never really asked to meet the sort of regulatory requirements that most other sectors do. So the moment they actually face that, you get that kind of a backlash. It's not dissimilar to the way, for example, the, the chemical industry uh, responded when, when REACH was initially proposed, um, you know, by a, a Swedish commissioner. Uh, German chemical industry took that really badly. Um, and again, you had a very similar response. So that, I think, is, is, is what you've seen on the one hand. And then the other thing that came in here is that I think the European People's Party really sort of is, 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 is testing its approach ahead of the next elections what they really objected to was the regulatory approach to this. So they essentially said, I think if I understood the arguments, is we don't want it to be binding, mandatory. So voluntary, paying for it, that's all fine. It's the, it's the, it's the binding nature really that I think is, is, is what they objected to. Kira, what are the difficulties regarding the nature restoration law? I think from the beginning, it was always going to be a difficult law. Because nature has this dual role. It has this role of being nature and just being part of the world. And it also has a very economic role. And in Europe, we tend to verge a bit more towards the economic role. And there's also this issue with land use. You know, everything bumps up against its, each other. So you have renewable energy production, you have food production, you have uh, even military infrastructure was an issue for some member states. So there were always going to be things that needed to be worked through. And we saw that in the in the council. You had countries who came and said, okay, we, we agree that we need to restore nature, but we have this, this and this, which is going to prevent us from doing it. So there was always going to need to be this big conversation as to how this would actually work in practice. And there was also going to be this question as to how to fund it because this stuff doesn't happen for free. What we saw, though, was these concerns being you know, blown out of proportion and spoken about a lot. And instead of looking at how to 
mitigate these things and work around them and even produce some exemptions, the European People's Party just were like, no, we're not going to do this at all. So what did this vote show us? I think it's it's showing that there are going to be issues with environmental legislation as we move forwards. The good news is a lot of the climate legislation is already done, but we have this wider issue of growing discontent about the amount of green legislation that is coming through. And ahead of the election, we're seeing this increasingly politicised. So instead of actually talking about the content, it's becoming a political tool uh, for the elections and ahead of the elections. But on the other hand, we're seeing the world increasingly being affected by climate change. We're seeing uh, these heat records that are being hit in particularly southern Europe at the moment. And these things are going to keep worsening. So we're seeing this balance between people saying we actually need to stop and slow down and the world probably saying we need to speed up. So I think this is the first test as to how we deal with that and to how we go forwards in this. And Peter, what does this tell us about the upcoming parliamentary elections, but also about the future of uh, EPP? The European People's Party really sort of is testing its approach ahead of the next elections. Um, They were on board with the European Green Deal after the last elections, partially because there was a green wave, that was where the political energy was. And the EPP really partially was on board with that, but also partially really wanted to control, you know, the level of ambition, make sure it doesn't get too ambitious. So they were on board in order to keep it, not have it too ambitious. Whereas now the political dynamic is a different one. You've seen a lot of countries, far right parties doing really well, um, uh, getting into government. So they sense an opportunity on, you know, the other side of the spectrum. And they've basically decided if necessary, we can do it on the other side as well. The good news is that that didn't happen. They lost it. Uh, the bad news is that, well, or the, the open question is what will happen after the elections next year? The EPP is either about to or has made a choice about where it sees its alliances the next couple of months and then, of course, after the next elections. And they're basically signaling a willingness that they're willing to cooperate formally uh, with the far right. Uh, and of course, the signal that is sending to the far right is it's 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 an emboldening one. And partially, I think that's just because the far right has understood you don't need to leave the EU to do your agenda. There is probably more attention now and more clarity on what is at stake at European elections. I think in the past, European elections have been really on, on a very similar level as communal elections. People look at it to just sort of see what it means for actual real elections. <laughs> Um, and my sense is that that is that is changing here. I mean, I think generally the whole European Green Deal, the pushback you're seeing on things like internal combustion engines, heat pumps in Italy, they've even started pushing back on uh, uh, cultivated meat, despite the fact it's not even been put on the market yet. Uh, I think really tells you that there is there's a lot at stake here. It's going to be a very serious effort by the far right and some of its allies to try and kill the European Green Deal. And I think anyone who does not want that to be the case, wants this agenda to be a success, needs to come out fighting for this. And Kira, what's next on the agenda? So there's a trilogue that will be the first round of negotiations between the European Commission, the Council and the European Parliament. It's going to be a strange one because the European Parliament's part of its negotiating position 
is actually the council's entire negotiating position. So normally you have the two uh, parties come and say, right, we want this, we want this. And then over time, they come to an agreement, which often they like. Sometimes there are elements that either side don't like. Whereas with this, you have two very similar approaches, but some minor differences that may actually cause quite a lot of headaches for negotiators. So it could be done very quickly, but there may also be things which trip negotiators up. Uh, But I I think most people would say they still want this to be done by the end of the year. But obviously, once you have the negotiated law at the end of this, this has to be voted on again by the European Parliament. And I think there's a bit of a concern as we look ahead to see whether this will all kick off again. And the vote was so tight last time, whether, you know, someone is sick or someone doesn't make it to Strasbourg. And then we might end up in the position where the, the negotiated law gets rejected. Thank you very much. I am Evi Kiori, and this was your Reactive's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Reactive to stay on top of the latest news. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by myself with the help of Reactive's energy and environment reporter, Kira Taylor. And I want to thank our executive producer, Malte Kettleson. Thank you for tuning in. And until next week.